Please take the precious Word of God that you hold in your hands, whether it be a mechanical device or the printed pages of a book, and open to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What a privilege and a blessing we have in your hands, and that is the Word of God, the revelation of the mind of God, the revealed will of God, the inspired scriptures that convey to us true doctrine, that convey to us truth, that show us error of anything that doesn't match up with what is found in its pages. We esteem all his precepts concerning all things to be right, and we hate every false way. By having his precepts with us, we are wiser than our enemies, we understand more than our teachers, and we have more understanding than the ancients. These things say the word of God, and we believe them. And we're thankful that in your hands and in my pulpit, we have the preserved words of the living God, proven to us by faith, fruit, facts, and fools. An important subject that we need to consider this morning, along with whatever other ones the Lord will allow us to get to. I am thankful again for the women expressing their appreciation for being reminded of our differences from the Reformed faith. We are making a study of Reformed Baptists, which is useful not only for us knowing where they err, but for reminding ourselves of what we believe and why. I have turned you to Matthew chapter 16 for an opening passage of Scripture, because it is common for people to believe today that we shouldn't name names. We shouldn't pick on other denominations. We shouldn't do what we're doing. But we must do it. It is our holy and solemn duty to identify heresy and name names, to protect the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God from false doctrine, false teachers, and false churches. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 12, the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to start at verse 6. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread? that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Our poor brethren, the apostles, were consternated by the Lord's statement to them, and thinking naturally, they went the wrong direction. But brethren... Most people today are consternated as well by a series of messages against a segment of our own so-called denomination. We're Baptists, they call themselves Baptists, and here we are identifying some of them as having errors according to the Word of God and being different from us. And most don't like to have denominations named or churches named or men named. But we have to do it because our Savior did it and His apostles did it. And it's how we make it plain enough for people to understand where the errors are. I want you to know that in verse 6, when Jesus said, Take heed, 
You be on the lookout and you be careful. And beware, there is danger involved in the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. He was picking on two of the largest denominations in the Jews' religion. He was picking on the most conservative sect, the Pharisees, and the most liberal sect, the Sadducees. He picked on them both, and he lumped them together. And that would have been offensive to the Pharisees, as it was in Matthew 22, and it would have been offensive to the Sadducees, as it was in Matthew 22. They each wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to put the other down, but they didn't appreciate it when he turned his glorious trumpet and mouth, the learned tongue of the wise, on each of those sects in Matthew chapter 22. But here we have our Precedent laid down by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he tells us in verses 11, and they understood it in verse 12 finally, that he meant the doctrine. So it is our duty to take heed, to be careful, to be looking, to be vigilant, to be watching, and to beware that there's danger in the pot of the Reformed Baptists and the Reformed faith. I would like you to turn also to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, where our brother Paul gives us another precedent case of naming names. 2 Timothy chapter 2, at verse 16. His instructions for Timothy were to study in verse 15, a verse that many of you know, but they also included this instruction in verse 16. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Here our apostle names two men, And said their word, their preaching, their message, their doctrine is like a cancer. It eats and devours men. And it's overthrown the faith of some. And the particular error is pointed out here. These men have erred from the truth. They are no longer preaching the truth. They're preaching a lie. And their lie is that the resurrection is past already. And there's a whole field of prophetic interpretation today that teaches the same thing. Do you even know the name of it? The whole field. Preterism. Preteris, that everything that the Bible has in the way of prophecy in the New Testament was fulfilled in 70 A.D., including the second coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead, and the final judgment. They deny the resurrection by saying it's past already. We're not going to take the time to chase that one down right now. We have before. Because we still have the blessed hope of the believer. It couldn't happen, Paul said, until there was a falling away and the man of sin be revealed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There was a great period of time that had to run according to Daniel chapter 7. We still have things left for us. We're not preterists. We do not deny the resurrection by saying it's past already. Here are a couple of examples for what we're doing and why we're doing it to hopefully relieve your mind and to remind you that when we do such things, we have a Bible basis for them. And when you speak to others, that you would be able to defend what we do with the Bible. When you marry another person, you take their name. And when you take their name, you also take their baggage. That's an expression we use when we marry someone. Well, the Reformed Baptists have married the Reformers by taking their name and attaching it to the word Baptist. And they have to be responsible for some of the baggage that comes with marrying the Reformers. And I hope that you understand that. And that is why a name that is outside of Scripture is dangerous because it associates a church with things they may not want to be associated with. And though they may try to say, well, we, we only go so far in our marriage, you shouldn't have taken the name then. Right. You should have remained Bible Baptist. And what a glorious name that is. Amen.
But it's not a name of a church in the New Testament, so we're not called Bible Baptists as far as a formal name, but we are Bible Baptists. We're Baptists that follow the Bible. And we follow the Bible as Baptists. I want you to turn now to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And let the Lord Jesus Christ speak to us again. The Lord Jesus taught two contrasting principles and rules. And it will help us hold the middle ground, or to look for the crown of the road of righteousness, the highway of holiness, between excessive criticism of the Reformed Baptists and no criticism at all. Here's what the Lord Jesus taught. And you may have encountered this apparent contradiction before, but I hope that I can very easily and quickly explain it to you. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 49... We read, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. We believe that, and we submit to that. Joshua and another young man once came to Moses and said, Moses, there's men prophesying in the camp. And we told them to stop, and you tell them to stop. They were looking out for the interests of their their master. They were looking out for the interests of the head of Israel, Moses. And Moses said, would to God the whole nation was prophesying. Would to God the whole nation were prophets. He wasn't jealous for his position. And neither should we be jealous for our church in this respect. Would to God there were thousands of churches that could legitimately say they were Bible Baptists. The error here is that John forbade this man who was working in the name and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ simply because he was not part of their fellowship. He was not in association with them. He was not part of them. He was traveling a different road, but doing the same thing in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus said words that we don't want to forget in that 50th verse, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. If this man is doing it in my name, it doesn't matter whether he's associated with us, whether he's one of the 12 or he's one of the 70, he's for us. Don't stop them. Okay, come over two chapters to Luke chapter 11. The disciples were too exclusive. Just because you're not part of us, then you must not be part of the truth, and therefore you shouldn't do what you're doing. Wrong. Wrong. We we pray to God and we trust by faith in His Word that He has His 7,000, and we hope there's 70,000, or we hope there's 700,000 throughout the world that have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal nor kissed his image. Whether they know us or not, and whether we know them or not, whether they acknowledge us or not, or whether we acknowledge them, it doesn't matter. Lord God, we pray that there's many, and that you will raise up more. Luke chapter 11 and verse 23, Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. Now he has said in Luke chapter 9, he that is not against us is for us. Now he says, he that is not with me is against me. And he doesn't mean those who are not with us by fellowship or association, but those who are different from us in doctrine. Because the doctrinal difference here is the gypsies of the Jews compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a doctrinal difference. They weren't doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by His authority and power as the Son of God. They were doing it by their devilish inventions of exorcism. And so He said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. And so here's the difference. Luke 9, just because they may not have our name or know us or communicate with us, it doesn't matter. If they're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the Word of God, they're with us and for us. And let's pray for them. 
Let's bless them and not criticize them or ever forbid them. But if and when we find those that are doing something by a doctrine, a spirit, a gospel that is contrary to the New Testament, they're not for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're against Him. And that's how we draw the line. By those two contrasting principles. As we look into these things that we're considering, we may not be guilty. We must not be guilty of revisionism, which is altering history to serve our purposes, and we're not going to do that. We just want to admit, and I want to save you from the widespread ignorance among most Baptists regarding the real character and nature of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. We also need to avoid all hypocrisy that we possibly can, as was prayed before I preached, lest we sit in doctrinal judgment on others while living carnally ourselves. Lord, save us. Reformed Baptists have chosen their church name for one or more of at least six reasons. Let me quickly review this with you. To identify themselves with the Reformers of the 16th century, And that Reformation, which they consider to be a great work of God, especially two men named Martin Luther and John Calvin. Number two, to identify themselves with Reformed doctrine of salvation, namely that of TULIP. TULIP being the acrostic that stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of saints. For the third reason to identify with the 1689 London Confession of Faith of the Baptists of a hundred churches in the London area of England in 1689. That was later copied in 1742 in Philadelphia for the first association of Baptist churches in this country. For the fourth reason is they want to identify with the five solas. Sola Scriptura, meaning by Scripture alone, Sola means soul or only. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. So they choose the name Reformed Baptist. They want to identify their efforts to reform Baptist doctrine and practice from Arminianism that has corrupted so many Baptist churches in the last century. And I've added another one, and I implied this one last week, but I want to give you a dictionary definition of the, of the problem. Though it's not a pleasant term, it has a very legitimate dictionary definition. It's for snob appeal. When you, when you call yourself a Reformed Baptist, there's a certain degree of snob appeal, of superiority to Arminian and ordinary Baptists, by association with a more doctrinal, formal, scholastic, and systematic approach to doctrine, teaching, and practice of the church. And so there's an element of snob appeal, and if you've talked with very many Reformed people, you will come away with that. They pride themselves on the size of their libraries, the cost of their libraries, the number of fathers and commentators they have, because that is where... They, they put a lot of emphasis on the intellectual superiority of the Reformed faith or Reformed Baptists as opposed to the typical independent fundamentalist Baptist who really doesn't know a great deal about historical theology or even the Bible itself, which is a shame. But we don't correct one ditch by, go, by leaping across the road into another ditch. We're Baptists and we don't want such name connection with the Reformation in any way. I told you last Lord's Day that Reformed Baptists is an oxymoron. An oxymoron is a word describing a combination of contradictory terms. You can't have a dry ocean and you haven't been to a wet desert. And you haven't met a Reformed Baptist. Because you can't put the two together. If you're truly a Baptist, you're not Reformed. If you're truly Reformed, you're not a Baptist. The Reformed people know that. And Baptists should know that. And we want to see if we can make it clear in our study. Baptists were not part of the Reformation. They existed before it and outside it. As all the historians of all the Reformed denominations admit. If you want some pleasant reading this afternoon, before you get this outline... 
you can go type in three witnesses of Baptist church history. And you will find an excellent work. And one of those witnesses are the, the number one th- church historians from each of the Reformed denominations and what they have to say about the Baptists existing since the apostles. You've got to read it to believe it. It'll hurt. It'll be unbelievable that the Lutherans and the Anglicans and the Dutch Reformed Church and the Presbyterians have church historians that know about us and our fathers all the way back to the apostles. It's precious. But they still count the real church to be their mother. by, By real, I mean what they consider to be the real church is their mother. It's the Roman Catholic Church. But they know about us. And they know that we had the same kind, though different names, the same kind of doctrine, the same baptism, the same church organization, and we were persecuted heavily. The Catholics admit it. Baptists are not truly Protestants. A Protestant is someone who is protesting against something. The Baptists never really protested against the Catholic Church because they weren't in it, part of it, or protesting against it, and they knew where the Catholic Church came from. They knew it was the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. They knew it was the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2. They knew it was the beast of Revelation 12 and 13. They knew it was the great whore of Revelation 17. They weren't protesting against it. They knew that God had prophesied of it. They weren't trying to reform it, correct it, improve it. They just lived outside it and endured it as she made war with them. Baptists have never and would never, true Baptists, to credit the Roman Catholic Church as ever being a true church. For they knew her to be the great whore and mother of harlot churches and the whole of every foul spirit. Revelation chapter 18. Baptists have never and would never credit Roman Catholic baptisms or ordinations as valid which means that Martin Luther and John Calvin were never baptized or ordained. The Reformation and the Reformers despised, ridiculed, and persecuted Baptists. And I sent you a link this week. I work hard to find links that I can justify to send to you. That you could take a few minutes and scan down through it, and it will shock you what some of the Reformers did to our fathers in the faith. John Calvin was the spiritual leader and father of the city of Geneva. Zwingli was the spiritual leader and father of Zurich. And he hated Baptists. And he drowned them. And repeatedly drowned them. They want to believe in immersion? We'll immerse them. You need to read his quotes. He's looked at as one of the great reformers out of Switzerland. Lord God, what fathers we've had, and we struggle with living the Christian life in all the pleasure, prosperity, and protection that we have. God forgive us. We're not worthy of their name. But Lord, help us. I gave you that, that link this past week in an update for your benefit. The so-called great reformers named above, Martin Luther, Zwingli, John Calvin, and others, didn't leave Rome in all respects. For she had brainwashed them, and they would not bow to Baptist simplicity. Do you understand how few there are in the world that will be a fool for Jesus' sake? And you have to be a fool for Jesus' sake to worship in a church like this, to worship in a Baptist church. If you're going to a church that is the most impressive edifice in town, that has the highest steeple, the most beautiful stained glass, the best singers, the finest pipe organ in town, men in robes, Incense ascending into that vaulted ceiling. And when there's a baptism, your baby's in a christening gown that's beautiful, and there's money spent, and there's candles burning, and all the things that they do for a show of religion in Christianity. And yet, if you want to be a fool for Jesus' sake, you're out at some little creek in February where it's freezing cold, and you're being dunked underwater in your clothes. Praise God! There's been a few that would be fools for Jesus' sake. And are you willing to be such for Him? When you attach the name Reformed to Baptists, you're saying you don't want to be a fool for Jesus' sake. You want some respectability in the world. You want to appeal to the great doctors of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. You want to appeal to the great commentators and their body of doctrine. Oh, brethren, let's be the simple babes of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that are, be, are willing to be made fools for Him. I want to say this again. Martin Luther and John Calvin are not heroes for Baptist children. As they were heretics on numerous counts, were never baptized, and hated and persecuted Baptists. So why should they be heroes for Baptist children? Would you help me understand that? You might as well throw Benedict XVI in there with them. What about Joseph Smith? You know, how long do we have to wait until Joseph Smith's a good hero for Baptist children, the father of Mormonism? If someone asked you, what confessions of faith do you hold to if you don't hold the 1689? Well, we like many things about the 1689. There's just a few things we don't like about it. We prefer the 1644 and 1646 of seven Baptist churches in London that put together a shorter confession of faith. And we like one of the country churches around London called the Midlands Confession of 1655. These were 40 and 30 years respectively in front of the 1689 Confession. And we we prefer them because they have earlier dates. They're orthodox regarding Christ's sonship. And they show less respect for the Presbyterians. They're less reformed. That's why we like them better. Brethren, let's come to the Word of God. Most Reformed Baptists reject the presumed, intellectually inferior King James because they want association and respect from the classically educated daughters of Rome. Reformed churches typically do not hold to the King James Bible. They are part and parcel of lower and higher textual criticism. They are part of the formation and the, and the production and publishing of the various Bible versions that we have today. We differ from anyone that has turned away from the King James Bible for the reasons that I've mentioned already, and I'll mention again just by repeating them, and it's in a study I gave to you a few months ago, proving the King James Bible. We prove it by faith in the promises of God to preserve His Word, the fruit that He promised would follow His Word, the facts of the internal integrity consistent with how Jesus and Paul used the word, and the fools, the educated, the mighty and the noble of this world that make fun of the King James Bible, we know the King James Bible is the word of God by that approach, rather than textual criticism, manuscript evidence, or any other line of reasoning, we look to the Bible itself that identifies the King James as God's word. And remember, there's a PowerPoint presentation for you to review that if you forget any of those aspects. Now, they make a lot of noise about sola scriptura, meaning the Bible only is the source of our faith and practice. They're the ones that coined that little Latin expression, one of the five Latin solas. Sola scriptura, only scripture, scripture only. I can remember... As a Baptist boy, about 10 years of age, seeing my first film about Martin Luther. And he was on trial. And the film had built up by reviewing his life and the attacks of the Roman Catholic Church against him for nailing 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And you know this case is being built up, and here's this 10-year-old boy that never got to watch very much television, thanks be to God. And he's watching this film about Martin Luther, and Martin Luther is now on trial. And he says, when he's asked about a table of books and papers that he had written, are these yours? And do you still agree with what you have written here? Unless and until, and I'm not quoting it exactly, I'm giving you the body of it. It's not important enough for me to quote exactly. Unless and until reasons are brought to me from Holy Scripture, I will not go against my conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. I want to tell you something about a little 10-year-old Baptist boy. He, He almost had his loins loosed with joy. He loved to hear that man defy the Roman Catholic Church who was accusing him about his books and his writings. 
Sola Scriptura, dear Martin. Is that where you stood, Martin Luther? That only Scripture. I needed to hear about a John Bunyan who spent 12 years in the dank, dark prisons of London, England under King James that gave us our Bibles and his son Edward and others for preaching the Baptist doctrine. By the way, I know that there's a brother in this church that has recently read a book called The Mortification of Sin by the learned Dr. John Owen, who lived at the same time and who was on the other side of that chasm between us and the Reformed. But he wrote a great book called The Mortification of Sin. And he wrote a great book that led to my conversion on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. He was a chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. He was once asked what he thought about the tinkers preaching. (laughs) That's John Bunyan. Just a little fool for Jesus' sake was John Bunyan. And John Owen was the most learned man in England in the religious business. And he he was a good man. And he wrote many good things, but he was of the Reformed faith. So what do you think of that Baptist, John Bunyan? I would gladly give up all of my learning if I had the tinker's gifts. Because the tinker could write books like The Pilgrim's Progress that described the life of a believer from conversion to heaven that was so good, that's the way he preached. Anyway, I just, I want to, I want to share that with you in little anecdotal historical information like that for the benefit of your soul. I needed to be thinking about John Bunyan in prison for being a Baptist in a nation that supposedly had a measure of religious freedom. What was he doing in prison with all his children? Those touting sola scriptura need to tell us what they mean by Scripture. Whether anyone ever had it, whether anyone presently has it, and whether it is trustworthy at the word level. When you read, or when you hear words like this, and some of you have quoted these hundreds of times, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments. Now that's deep. Is it the Old and New Testaments with or without the Apocrypha? Is it the Old and the New Testaments of what version and what translation? Is it the Old and the New Testaments of the Message? Or is it the Old and the New Testament of the King James Bible? When somebody tells you Scriptura only, Scripture only, the Bible only, I stand in the Bible alone for our faith and practice One of the first questions is, what Bible are you talking about? If you are talking about the originals, you are appealing and describing your faith in something that no one ever had and no one ever read in history or presently. There was no one in the New Testament that ever had 27 books of original writings bound together in a New Testament. They had copies of copies of copies and copies of translations and translations of copies. So that's one of the first things we want to ask. That is not good enough to tell us sola scriptura and just say, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. There are nearly as many differing Greek versions as there are English translations. When someone says, well, I go back to the original languages, what version of the original language do you go back to? Stevens did eight. Tischendorf did eight or more. The two of them had 15. There's countless Greek versions of the New Testament. Which one is the Word of God that can be relied on at the Word level? Where is the final authority that has individual words that can be trusted, as Jesus and Paul argued nine times from individual words? You know, they love to be called Reformed. But what Bible came into existence around the time of their Reformation? The King James. You can't just pick and choose if you're going to be reformed. If you're going to be reformed, then humble yourself before the King James and and God's fulfillment of His promises about His Word and God's granting of fruit to that book for 400 years. Thank you, Lord. If you're not going to pick the...
King James Bible, then you ought to pick the Geneva Bible. What are you using the ESV for? The English Standard Version. There's nothing reformed about it. It's 400 years too late. Those touting sola scriptura need to study Martin Luther's translation of the Bible. By the way, he wasn't the first to translate the Bible into German. He wasn't even close. He wasn't the tenth. There were many editions of the Bible in German, high German, low German, before Martin Luther did his. I have read his prefaces to the books of James and Jude this past week and his treatment of Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. He wouldn't include them. He had 23 books in his New Testament. He stuck them in at the end. The pages weren't numbered. He did not consider them as part of the New Testament canon. Four books. I love the book of Hebrews. Don't you love the book of Hebrews? Do you love Hebrews 9? He thought it was pitiful and horrible. James, he just flat out said this couldn't be written by an apostle. It couldn't be a part of the canon because of the way it disagrees with Romans and his concept of justification by faith. Because as I told you last Lord's Day, James says plainly, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So James was clearly saying sola fide is wrong. And since Martin couldn't reconcile that, he just relegated it to an epistle of straw, put it at the end of his New Testament, and didn't consider it Scripture. And you can read his own preface. I'll have links for you to read it so that you can see it. That's terrible. But they want to tout sola scriptura, and they want to produce movies where he says... Here I stand, I can do no other. But where does he stand? He stands in the fact that James, Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation are not part of the New Testament canon. If you had a Lutheran Bible that had those four as part of the 27, that's because you live in the 20th, 20th and 21st centuries. Just go back and look at his numbering system and what he considered the true New Testament and what he wrote in the preface leading into those books. It's a shame. It's sad. But why don't Baptists know these things? Why are they appealing to a Lutheran as an example for Baptist children? If Martin Luther were preaching the King James Bible and preaching it faithfully and counting all 27 books that God has granted by faith and fruit, facts and fools to be the inspired can of the New Testament, we would not forbid him. We would say more power to him. But he he differs doctrinally with us, and so we must say what we say. Those touting sola scriptura need to consider where in the world the Reformed got their idea of infant sprinkling out of a New Testament. When they say sola scriptura, really? Are you a New Testament Christian? Then show me your doctrine of baptism from a New Testament. If you're sola scriptura, Because honest Reformed writers admit that the New Testament does not teach infant baptism. Both Luther and Calvin taught that immersion was the scriptural and the ancient mode of baptism. In their writings. They knew what was scriptural and they knew what was the ancient mode of the apostles and those immediately coming from them. But they had tradition that if they were to divorce themselves from that tradition and to repudiate that tradition, they would have to become a fool for Jesus' sake, and most will not do that. Naaman wouldn't become a fool to get rid of his leprosy. Do you remember the story in 2 Kings 5? He comes with much wealth for the prophet that he heard about in Israel that could take away his leprosy. But when the prophet just sent a servant to the door and said, go dip seven times in Jordan, he lost it. He was outraged that the man wouldn't show him some honor and wouldn't come out and have this formal service and call fire down from heaven or whatever. He was going to have to go become a fool for Jehovah's sake in the Jordan River. And it was only his servants that had a little bit of wisdom that said, Master, you were willing to pay a great sum to get rid of your leprosy. All he has said is dip seven times in Jordan. Why can't you do that? Do you all understand where I'm going with that little Bible story? 
Are you willing to be a fool for Jesus' sake? Amen. And Naaman dipped himself like a fool. First time. Second time. By the sixth, he was really feeling bad about what he was doing. But the seventh time, he came whole. And that leprosy was gone. And that's what we want to be like. Honest Reformed writers know that the New Testament doesn't teach infant sprinkling. The apostles did not write the Catholic Reformed Creed bearing their name in the 4th century. I'm referring to the Apostles' Creed. You know, the apostles did not write the Apostles' Creed. It came into existence sometime around 300 A.D. And the apostles did not believe that Jesus descended into hell. Now you ought to see John Kelvin wrestle with that poor statement. Because some believed that that only meant he was buried. But that's ridiculous if you read the Apostles' Creed to say Jesus was buried. Some say that he went down there and preached to the patriarchs that were in some sort of a prison. Some believe he went to hell and preached to those and gave them another chance that died before the cross. All sorts of things come out of the foolishness of someone that wrote, He descended into hell. We believe that his soul was not left in hell because Psalm 16 and Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 tell us that. But we don't understand that word to mean the lake of fire or a prison for the condemned. It's the grave. And his soul, his body was not left there. And I went over that subject recently with you. If you're going to say sola scriptura, then show us where infants were baptized in the New Testament. If you're going to say sola scriptura, show us where sprinkling occurred in the New Testament. Now, Reformed Baptists could say, and should say, but we'll answer them. But we don't believe either of those two things. We believe in believer's baptism by immersion. And we'll say, yes, we know that. We know that, and we're glad for that. We're glad for that, but why would you take the name Reformed and attach it to the name Baptist when they don't believe that? The Reformers were all Pado-Baptists. And I don't call them Pado-Baptists. I call them infant-sprinkling heretics. Because Pado-Baptist is a nice euphemism that they're some kind of a Baptist, they just do it to Pados. Peds. Kids. You know, we like William Screven and Elisha Screven, the Second Baptist Church in the South was in Georgetown, South Carolina, and its name was the Antipado Baptist Church of Christ. Amen. Antipado, what does that mean? No infants here. Baptist Church of Christ. Praise God for men with courage like that. And why were they so convicted about it? Because the State Church of Maine, the Congregational Church, the Church of Jonathan Edwards, had persecuted that family and that church, so that all 28 members of it had to move from Kittery, Maine, to Charleston, South Carolina, and start the First Baptist Church in the South, which is today called the First Baptist Church of Charleston, but it has severely left the ancient landmarks those men gave it. The Scriptures, brethren, the Reformers despised Baptists for being too ignorant to understand Scripture. For most did not have their classical education... And most of those Baptists would boldly reject the Reformed sophisms. That means a sneaky philosophical use of the Bible. A logical, lawyer-trained method of using Scripture. They wanted the plain statements of Scripture. They didn't care what a man did in the Old Testament trying to prove that infant sprinkling was the mode and the subject for New Testament baptism. Baptists didn't care what you did from the book of Ezekiel. Baptists wanted something in the New Testament for New Testament Christians and New Testament practice. Is that too simple? Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Not what Ezekiel taught under a different covenant. Lord, have mercy upon us. The Reformers held various degrees of Rome's magisterium, which is the presumed ability and right of final interpretation of the leadership of the church in its bishops, cardinals, and popes in the Catholic Church and in its heads in the Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, and other churches. For instance, when our fathers in 1689, and I regret their choice 
but they had political necessity and political needs that we can't fully appreciate to show themselves aligned with the Presbyterians, and they copied much of the Westminster Confession of Faith for the 1689 Confession of Faith. But they started the confession out with a sentence that is different. Most of it's word for word. Much of it's word for word, phrase for phrase, except for church government, except for baptism, and a few other things. First sentence of our Baptist fathers. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, an infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Presbyterians didn't have that because there was still within them, because of their training from Rome, a respect and a reliance on the teaching of the leaders of the church. The historical, theological positions of the church. If you're truly Baptist, then get a Bible that teaches Baptist baptism and condemns the Reformation in 1 Peter 3.21. And I would like you to look at that text. I must remind you to never forget this text and to understand it. 1 Peter 3.21. In the last year, I have given you a PowerPoint presentation on a Wednesday evening. It was entitled Baptism Babel. And it is about this verse. And I want you to remember it. And so I go over it again right now in the fear that you won't take the time to look at that PowerPoint presentation and be reminded. 1 Peter 3.21, this is the most definitive and the completest text in the Bible about baptism. And yet most don't even know it or fully appreciate it. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are three things taught in this one verse. First, baptism is a figure, meaning the like figure. See, there's a figure in verse 20. It's Noah's Ark. That was a picture of salvation. And baptism has a picture of salvation, but it's only a picture because it's called a figure. And it says in that first clause that that figure saves us. But when a figure saves you, it only saves you figuratively. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So, baptism must be a figure. It must be symbolic. It must represent and show a picture of something. And we find that something after the parenthetical material. What's in parentheses should be overlooked for the moment. That is what parentheses mean. To be overlooked for the moment. So we're able to read the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's immersion that shows a burial and a resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a picture, a symbol of that burial and resurrection that's the basis of our salvation. Then, within the parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not wash away our sins. Filth of the flesh is a New Testament description for our sin nature and our sins. And this verse tells us plainly, baptism does not wash away sins. But it is the answer of a good conscience. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience. We're already saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The gospel comes to us and tells us that we've been saved. We believe that gospel message and we want to answer God with a conscience that's already good. We don't get baptized to get a good conscience. We get baptized because we have a good conscience. Three things, but those three points about baptism. The proper mode, because it's a figure of resurrection. Can't be sprinkling, can't be pouring. The proper subject. Someone with an active conscience that can give a good answer to God. That means it can't be an infant. The proper design. It is not to wash away sins or bring about regeneration. It is not to put away the filth of the flesh. And the modern versions of the Bible corrupt all three of those points about baptism. So... If you're going to be a Reformed Baptist, 
then show us that you're Baptist by using a Bible that has 1 Peter 3.21 presented as a Baptist text, not one that's been corrupted by infant sprinklers. If you're a Baptist, then make sure you have a Bible that has Acts 8.37 in it. Acts 8.36 has the eunuch asking Philip, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Modern translations of the Bible, they don't even have a verse 37. But that verse 37 was Philip's answer. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there we find out the condition necessary for baptism. But if you're going to be a Reformed Baptist and you're going to say sola scriptura, make sure you've got yourself a Bible that has 1 Peter 3.21 correct in it, and it has Acts 8.37 in it. And go back and check out Martin Luther and his translation and read his prefaces to James and Jude. Find out what he did to Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation relative to his New Testament. Praise God for our Bibles. Those 27 books have stood from the days of the apostles. You should hear him rail on the epistle of Hebrews that Paul couldn't have written that epistle. I love reading it. Just rejoicing in that God's taken little babes and shown them the truth of His Word. Amen. You know, the Peter, Peter said that Paul wrote it because Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 that Paul has also written to you. And what audience did Peter write to? Hebrews, Jews. Peter, as, as our beloved brother Paul has also written to you, as he has in all of his epistles, some things hard to be understood. But Peter already admitted what Paul had done in his writing. One more point before we go to our break today. We are glad Reformed Baptists defend and promote the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ as far as they do in their positive declarations in opposition to JWs and Unitarians. However, they deny his proper identity and full deity by accepting and exalting confessions of, from church history that teach the originistic heresy of eternal generation and a begotten God. Because they have taken the name Reformed, that means that they're going to stand upon certain confessions of faith, usually starting with the Nicene Confession of Faith of 325 A.D. at a state church council, where the Baptists wouldn't have been invited, overseen by the civil government. Baptists wouldn't have done such a thing. Because to go to a church council where the emperor of Rome is overseeing the council is to commit fornication with the kings of the earth. Which is what Rome has done and her daughters have done, but Baptists will not do. But because they believe that confession, and because they have stake their reputations and their identity on confessions coming from that Nicene Creed, they end up with an eternally generated, begotten God. This hymnal, it's read. You may turn. Page 845. The Apostles' Creed. Page 846. The Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. 846. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And then it goes on and describes other things. If you were to turn to the right just a few pages, you would find the Westminster Confession of Faith stating the same thing in Article 2, Chapter 2, and Paragraph 3. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding, 
The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. By calling yourself Reformed Baptists, by them calling themselves Reformed Baptists, they have subscribed to the Nicene Creed and the Westminster and the London because the London copies the Westminster. So they end up with an eternally begotten Son of God. Very briefly on this point, and this is a point that separates us from other Baptists. And you need to know it, even though I do not have time to exhaust it like we have before in an outline that's readily available on our website called The Sonship of Christ. Origin is the one that originated this idea of the eternal generation of the Son. He lived around 200 to 250 A.D. He understood exactly what the implications were of God eternally generating the Son of God in eternity. That this generated God was an inferior God. No problem to origin. He was the one that originated the concept or the terminology of John 1.1 as it is now found in a Jehovah's Witness Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. He understood that. Now a man named Arius came along behind him, and Arius said, wait a minute. If we've got an inferior God that was eternally generated by the first God, then this is a created being. The second person of Trinity is, is created. And that's the origin of Arianism, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And so they had the Council of Nicaea in order to combat Arianism, but they combated Arianism with origins terminology. And they should have flushed it all and gone with the Word of God. Do you know what the Bible says? There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. 1 John 5, 7. They should have gone with this terminology. In John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14. And the Word was made flesh. The Son wasn't made flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What did the apostles behold? What was John talking about in John 1.14 that we beheld, the only begotten of the Father? He was talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. That terminology that we just read from the Nicene Creed and from the Westminster Confession of Faith, they believe that God, before the worlds were made, begat the Son of God in His divine nature. So that the God nature, the divine nature, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ was begotten. The deity was begotten before the worlds began. We believe That in the womb of Mary, a supernatural miracle, sometimes called the Incarnation, took place, in which a human nature from Mary's egg was made by the power of the Holy Ghost to be a combined God-man, both God and man. And it's that combined God-man, the combined human nature and divine nature, that is the only begotten Son of God. But until then, God did not have a son. There was God, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost. And the three of them were one. Because we believe this, John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and then we beheld the only begotten Son of God. Or verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. It's when you can, no man can see God, but they saw Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a man. Jesus of Nazareth had a birthplace, a birthday, a birth certificate. God was his father. Mary was his mother. And the combined dual natured being that was conceived and born is the son of God. Isn't the record of the New Testament this simple message? 
Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Not something created, generated, begotten before the worlds began. But Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is eternal in His divine nature. Jesus of Nazareth is temporal or everlasting in His human nature. But it's the two of them. And it's rightly dividing Scripture that looks at passages where it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Did the divine nature of Jesus grow in wisdom and stature? No. That was the Word of God, Jehovah, infinitely perfect. The mighty God, the everlasting Father. Does Jesus have those names? The mighty God, the everlasting Father? Because in His divine nature, there's one God. And He is that God. In Him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We defy the Reformers on this point. That they have taken language from origin that is based on Greek philosophy and Greek Gnosticism and the Greek concept of gods begetting gods and applied to the Bible because he was a speculative theologian that all men admit and know. But they did not repudiate all of his language and so they have left Scripture to come up with that God of God before the worlds. He was God. He wasn't of God. He was God before the worlds. He was Jehovah before the worlds. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, but His Son was made of a what? Made of a woman. Either you've got to have an eternal mother in heaven, or you've got to come to our position. Look at Luke chapter 1. Dear Reformed Baptists, Consider where you stand on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you make His deity begotten, then you have a begotten God. And every one of you that are using the New American Standard Version, in John 1.18, it says, you believe in a begotten God. But God is not begotten in any sense. Jesus was begotten. By the Father and the Holy Ghost overshadowing and coming over Mary. Well, let's read it. Verse 30 of Luke chapter 1, The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. A holy thing was born of Mary by the overseeing power of God and the Holy Spirit. And that holy thing was to be called the Son of God. That is the Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, who was God in the flesh and who tabernacled among men for 33 and a half years, He is the Son of God. Not some generation, eternal generation, mysterious, incomprehensible, they tell us. Oh no, it's comprehensible. God came upon Mary without the use of a man, and she conceived in her womb a man-child that was joined with God because He was God in the flesh. And it's the great mystery of godliness revealed to us. God was manifest in the flesh. In 1 Timothy 3.16. But here is where it it declares it plainly to us. Much more has been said, can be said, should be said. But I hope that you'll go make yourself a user of the materials that are already available on these points. If you think this is a minor distinction, and Reformed Baptists do not really care about details like this, then criticize the Nicene creedal doctrine of eternal generation to a Reformed Baptist, and criticize the Westminster Confession of Faith 
and tell them what you think of the Lenin Confession of Faith when it says the same thing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being begotten before the worlds began. Ask Michael Servetus as to whether the Reformed faith in Geneva thought that incarnate sonship was a small matter. He was the one burned in Calvin's Geneva. The strict Baptists and the Gospel Standard Baptists split in England in the middle of the 19th century over this very point of doctrine. We start with Scripture and we stay there. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. That is the simplicity of the Gospel faith. You don't have to wonder about what is eternal generation. Generation is an act of time. Eternity allows no time. So how do you... I guess we have another oxymoron. Eternal generation. Lord, thank you for the truth that you've shown us. Believest thou these things, brethren? This is why we're Bible Baptists. Not in name, but in practice. This is why we want to be fools for Jesus' sake. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Jehovah in the flesh. He wasn't begotten in His divine nature in any way, shape, or form. As soon as you admit, as soon as you allow that the divine nature of Jesus, His deity, His godhood, was begotten in eternity, you have a begotten God, whether you are honest and intelligent enough to admit it or not. You have a begotten God, and you have just given the Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians and others the rope to hang you and your Savior, for He is not the Almighty God. He is a begotten God, an eternally generated God. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, had His human nature generated in the womb of a virgin by the power of God. And He is our Savior, fully God, Jehovah, undivided and unbegotten, and fully man, a perfect Savior, a perfect mediator for all of us. And may Jesus Christ be praised.